I will be reading Matthew 2, 1 through 3, if you'd like to read with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And later this week, most of you will have the wonderful opportunity to spend time with family and friends, uh, celebrating what we sing as the most happiest season of all, right? Christmas. And look, there's a lot I love about Christmas. You know, there's the gifts, of course, Santa, chocolate, Santa's made of chocolate. But there's a lot about Christmas, too, that has this uncanny ability to draw out drama. And I'm not just talking about your crazy uncle who throws back a little too much eggnog, laughing a little too hard at his own jokes. I don't know if it is, you know, this burning smell of artificial pine, but it tends to bring out the worst and the best in all of us, doesn't it? And sometimes it gets downright ridiculous. Stephen Colbert, he's one of my favorite late-night hosts. He highlights one particular situation and just how ridiculous it can get. Let's watch together. You know, of all the things, this is what, this is what we get fired up about. You'd think someone had given him decaf coffee or something. And look, if you want something to be angry at Starbucks about, be angry that their outrageously delicious seasonal drink, the pumpkin spice latte, has more calories than a junior bacon cheeseburger from Wendy's. I know, I know. Okay, look, I've fallen prey to this, naively throwing back this cocktail of sugar, caffeine, and cream. All the while, I could have been sinking my teeth into a burger with bacon and losing weight. Now that is devious, right? But seriously, you know, Christmas is, it's always, even from its very beginning, been a day that polarizes people. When we get to Christmas, we often like to think of really wonderful stories. Like in World War I, there was these series of ceasefires where the German and the British troops laid down their arms around Christmas, began singing Christmas carols, and even played God's sport, soccer, right? It was beautiful, and it's a powerful story. But what we can't miss is that when God became flesh, when Christ entered the world some 2,000 years ago, it would first and foremost lead to bloodshed way before it ever led to peace. If you're anything like me, often we can come to the manger scene with our imaginations and this picture that's about as factual as Frosty the Snowman. We think we know the story. I thought I knew the story. But we can come and see the manger more influenced by 1970s claymation than the history that we find within the pages of Scripture. For example... What if there wasn't just three wise men? What if the wise men weren't kings? We three kings of Orient, right? What, what, if, what if the wise men never came to a manger? In contrast to almost every nativity set I've ever laid my eyes upon. What if, as we dive deeper into this oft misunderstood story, we find a great divide and Christmas is right at the center? 
Look, if you're new with us, over the past couple weeks, we've been going through a series about God's heart for all people. Not just a particular people in a particular place, but all people in every place. And we started by looking at the very beginning in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and how all the way back then, when God spoke to Abraham, he made a promise that he's going to make a really big family from all people to be a blessing to be all, to all people. And then we jumped ahead to the end of the story in Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and we saw how God makes true on his promise when he gathers together his family from every nation, tribe, and language, not to be a monocultural community, but a diverse community that finds their unity in the exclusive praise of Jesus Christ, the one true Lord and Savior. And after we looked at the bookends, we turned to the center of the story in Matthew, and we focused in upon the one on whom this whole story turns. Matthew says his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he begins by going through the family lineage of Jesus, and we find some of the most unlikely and scandalous of characters reminding us that you don't have to be perfect to be a part of Jesus' family. We also then last week saw how when Jesus came into the world, he came in the most unlikely and scandalous of ways. And today... We see right from the beginning that Christmas is either the worst day or the best day. Christmas is either the worst day or the best day. There is no middle ground. And it's surprising who sides with Jesus. This morning, we're going to walk and take our time going through the story as it's presented in the text. And then we're going to circle back at the end to see how this particular moment in history and what God has done there still has quite a bit to challenge us with today. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. If you have one of our community Bibles, you can find it on page number 807. Now, our story this morning, it doesn't begin with a manger. It doesn't even begin with the birth of Jesus. Matthew says, as we heard the text read, that this is sometime after the birth of of Jesus. Our story this morning begins with a star. It begins with a star. I, I'm personally very fond of hiking in the New Mexican desert, going to the top of plateaus and looking at the stars for hours. I've always been that kind of person. I love, it's so clear out in New Mexico, you can actually see the satellites as they blink and they'll go across the sky. It's so clear, it's outrageously gorgeous. And if you've ever been stargazing, you've had that moment where a particular star grabs your attention, either because of its size or by the way it shines or it glimmers, and there's a difference, and it draws you in with question. Well, something similar happened around 2,000 years ago with a group of scholars. Oftentimes we call them wise men, sometimes magi. We mistakenly call them kings because there's no historically verifiable basis for us calling them that. The best way to describe these folks is that they're avid scholars of astronomy and astrology. They know the heavens. And on what seemed like an ordinary day, they saw something. Some interpreters say, you know, they saw a supernova in the sky. Others say an unusually bright star. Some will even say this was an angel itself guiding these scholars to Jesus. And then others would even say it was a comet 
where the scholars would have seen a drama unfold in the celestial landscape in the evening. And they would have seen something like this. In the midst of all the stars, they would have seen the constellation grouping called the Virgin. And they would have seen her being and playing the role of a mother giving birth to a baby whose part was played by a comet as it rose, as Matthew says in the text. Now, the truth be told, we have no idea what they saw, okay? And... The lexical range of the word star that Matthew has in our text can capture any one of those meanings in a first century understanding. But that's not the point as to what they saw. Whatever it was, God was moving the heavens and the heavens were moving them. And they were willing to go to the, dist- go to the distance to find what was happening. Now, the text says they're from the east. More than likely, that means Babylon, which is modern-day Baghdad, Iraq. And if they were to make a trek from Baghdad to Jerusalem, that's around 800 miles. It probably wouldn't have been a few random scholars, but they would have had full caravans of people. So it could have easily taken them around 40 days to make this trek because they had to find the one, this king, whom stirred the heavens and so stirred their hearts. We also know that they had to have had some understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is not outside of the realm of possibility, considering in 586 B.C., Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem and brought many in the Jewish community captive in exile to Babylon. How do we know this? Because when they show up in Jerusalem, what do they say? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? You can't get that from the stars. And they came all this way that they might worship him. Ecstatic. Their hearts overflowing as to what this could mean. But not everybody's excited about this news, right? Remember, Christmas is either the worst day or the best day. And the divide is pretty staggering. For Herod, as soon as he hears this news, all he can hear is a threat to his throne. (coughs) His own personal sovereignty, his own control over his life and his personal kingdom. You see, Herod, he was one of those interesting guys. He was a man who's always loved power. He was an amazing administrator, always was. Brilliantly, brilliant at the art of manipulation. He was politically savvy. He was one of the only underneath the Roman Empire that the Roman Empire themselves said he was the king of the Jews. And then he ruled with a brutal fury from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., which on a side note, tells us that Jesus was probably born earlier than many of us think he was, probably around 7 to 4 B.C., as an aside. And considering all the structures that Herod built during his reign, for starters, he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem to surpass even the glory as to what was in Solomon's day. He developed an underwater cement So he could develop these port cities that one of the few wonders in the world at that time. And it's all of this and more that still guides people to be amazed at him. I mean, there's a reason this guy's called Herod the Great. But the only thing that topped his own sense of self-importance was his paranoia. He would have these fits of jealousy and rage to the point that he even killed and murdered his favorite wife, He killed two of his sons and some of his relatives for fear that they were trying to usurp his throne. This man of terror, this brutal king, 
He grew up Jewish, going to synagogue. He knew the prophecies, or at least some semblance of the idea. And when he heard that there was a newborn king of the Jews, even this mighty man became terrified of a baby in diapers. And actually, the text says, all of Jerusalem with him. Now, they're not terrified of Herod being usurped from the throne. They're terrified of what Herod does when he's terrified of being usurped from the throne. Not to mention, there were a series of uprisings that had already happened across Palestine, which led to Roman brutal oppression to snuff out the resistance and mass bloodshed. So the geopolitical climate of the day was already tense, and the sound of a newborn king meant that violence was on the horizon. But for all of his terror, Herod was a politician first. And he fought himself together with good composure, and he brings together some of the best biblical scholars of the day, the chief priests and the scribes. And he begins to ask questions. Hey, are there any prophecies back then of the exact location and the whereabouts as to where this Messiah, this King of the Jews might be born? That we might help out these wise men, that we might navigate the way forward. Listen to what Matthew says in verse 5. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Just six miles from Jerusalem sat the small town of Bethlehem, where the promised king was finally born. Interestingly enough, it's the same small town that another ancient king was born, King David. This isn't by coincidence. There's a theme over and over and over that points us back to the promises that one day one of David's heirs will sit on the throne forever. And this new king who's stirring up the rumors will be the true shepherd of God's people. And the rumors begin going out, maybe God is fulfilling his promises after all. Well, whether the magi, these scholars, are right about what they saw in the heavens or not, whether the prophecies are being fulfilled at this particular point in time or not, Herod wasn't going to take any chances. So he brings the scholars together to a secret meeting, the text says, a backroom conversation, and he begins to ask questions. When did the star appear? How old do you think this boy is? Were there any other signs? You see, if Herod were to take the strengths finder assessment test today, deceit would be in his number one, Okay. He was an art. He was a master of the art of manipulation. And you begin to see this in the text because what he does is he gives a little to gain trust. Oh, you want to know where he who was born king of the Jews was born? Well, the prophecies say he was born in Bethlehem. And under the guise of his desire to also go and worship, he says, well, once you find the exact location in Bethlehem, will you come and find me? Come and tell me so that I too may go and worship. And they believe him. These wise guys totally are blind to what Herod's doing. And trust me, you would be too. If you met Herod when he's at the top of his charm, you'd be drawn in. And so they take off to Bethlehem. And the text says the star reappears. 
It had been gone, but now it reappears. And they have this exceeding joy. They're ecstatic. And you can almost imagine their hearts are overflowing. And the star had disappeared, and now it's reappeared. And they're running, caravans of people running for fear that the star might be gone again. And finally, they get to the point where they look up and they're right underneath. Because it had rested right above the place where the child resided. And when you follow from the sky to the earth, you don't find a manger. The text says we find a house. And they approach the home and they look in the window and they see him, Jesus. And it says they fall down and worship him. Not them. This isn't about worshiping Mary alongside of Jesus. The focal point is on God become flesh, Jesus Christ exclusively. And they bow down. And, and what can you give someone that the heavens themselves proclaim? They give three gifts, which is probably where we got this whole tradition that there were three of these scholars in the first place. We really don't know how many of them there were. There could have been two. There could have been 20. And what were the gifts? Well, the first was frankincense, which is, to be frank, incense. And if that is a particular kind of incense that was only available, only to be used at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Myrrh was a special sap that was exuded from Arabian trees that was used for a very costly perfume, oftentimes used for embalming people. And then also there was gold, 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 gold. Now, a lot has been made of these particular gifts and its symbolism, and there's probably quite a bit going on here. But for these first century scholars, they sought to give costly gifts that were due the honor of a king. One commentator said they probably worshipped better than they knew. And this is usually where we stop in the story, isn't it? We exchange gifts, whether Christmas or Epiphany, which happens usually in January around the world. Then we take down our Christmas ornaments and we await the next year. But if we stop the story here, we lose all the significance of what is happening. We miss out. The story gets real good, real quick. So what happens? Well, the whole exchange of the gifts thing is really quick. It's not very long. They've traveled some 40 plus days now to get here to this point and they maybe spend a couple hours because they've been warned in a dream that Herod... God is working to protect his son. He warned them in a dream that Herod was seeking to deceive them. And who knows how long it would take for Herod's paranoia to turn violent. And so they head back east, this time avoiding Jerusalem. But what are the Christ child? God is protecting his child. And so he sends an angel to Joseph and says, Joseph, right now, Right now, you need to go to Egypt. Take the child and his mother. A really unique way of saying that in the Greek. The emphasis is on the child. Jesus at the center of this story. Take the child and his mother and go to Egypt and stay there until I come to you again. This is like the original, I'll be back moment. And as he waits... And as he travels and then waits in Egypt, we find that this holy family has gone from royal prestige and honor to now be refugees on the run, hoping to find protection 
underneath the governmental rule in Egypt, where there were probably around a million or so Jews at the time. Could this be a part of God's plan, that his son would be on the run as a refugee from persecution, that he would have to leave his homeland and find protection from a neighboring foreign country? Well, in the latter half of verse 14, Matthew gives us a resounding yes. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, as an aside, really to help us read our Bibles better, whenever Matthew mentions that Jesus fulfilled something that was written or proclaimed by one of the prophets, we need to keep two things in mind here, okay? The first is, what Matthew means is that Jesus fits a pattern, of what the prophets proclaimed the Messiah would be like. It's not always a one-to-one fulfillment, as we often think of prophecy and fulfillment, okay? Second, sometimes Matthew will quote only a part of a verse or a couple small parts of a couple small verses and bring them together. Not so that we just focus on the part, But as a Jewish listener or reader who would have memorized large swaths of the text, it would have drawn you into the sum total of what he's saying. It would be like me telling you I was driving on the highway and I got a bad case of the munchies. So I pulled off and went to the Golden Arches. You're not going to think I literally went to Golden Arches. You're going to think he went to McDonald's. And then you're going to judge me for my bad eating habits. I get it. But when we come to the text... What he's quoting is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and he's trying to give us a more robust understanding of who this Messiah is and how it was always a part of God's plan. That in history, God had always preserved and protected and brought out of Egypt his one unique son, Israel. Time and again throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called the son of God. And it's the same pattern of God's protection. And that's what Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1, originally is focusing on Israel. But here Matthew says it's focusing in on Jesus. And the same pattern of protection is now fulfilled in God's divine intervention for the true Son of God to whom all of Israel has always been pointing. You see, God is working in ways of deliverance that he has always promised he would and he has always delivered. But here Christmas pushes the Holy Family further from their home and builds a greater chasm between Herod and Christ. God knew it. Herod caused it. Further the chasm becomes. Now, it doesn't take long, maybe a day or two, before Herod does turn violent. He realizes that he was the fool of the scholars' deceit. And there's nothing like feeling like you've been beaten at your own game. And so he sends soldiers to Bethlehem to do the unthinkable. And they slaughter every young boy that is under the age of two. Bethlehem wasn't a big city. So it's no surprise that if we were to scour the historical books, you would find no reference to this. We wouldn't expect it to. I mean, there was probably around 10 to 30 boys in Bethlehem. And while historians consider this unworthy of mention, Matthew wants us to remember the cries of these mothers as they held their lifeless sons that were snuffed out by a false king, King Herod. Why? Matthew tells us again in verse 17. Then was fulfilled 
what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Even here, this was a part of God's plan. Not that God purposed evil, mind you, but he knew and he allowed this to happen. There's no way around what Matthew is communicating here. But how could God let this happen? It all comes to the significance of the one son who did get away safely. If we don't realize how broken of a world we live in and how deep this problem is and how amazing and important this one person Jesus is, then we won't be able to make sense of any of this. You see, the tears of these mothers in Bethlehem will forever be held onto and remembered as the climax of the mothers who have wept generation after generation because of the oppression of exile. And so much so that Rachel, symbolically representing the mother of Israel, weeps with these women such that they might not have to weep any longer. You see, there's hope. Jesus, the true promised heir to the throne of King David, the Messiah has come. And even in the worst of circumstances, there's hope because Jesus lives. And I could tell you story after story of what is relayed in the pages of Scripture, but in one sense, that hope never changes. Because we do not weep as those who have no hope. That is the refrain that we find time and again. Well, finally, after what feels like forever, Herod dies. And what was a six-mile chasm, then a 75-mile chasm between Bethlehem and Egypt is now an eternal chasm because Herod has denied Christ and will spend an eternity apart from him. And when he dies at 4 BC, the temporary threat to Jesus, the Lord and Savior, vanquishes for but a moment. The angel returns to Joseph and says, you can finally go home. You can finally go home. And Christmas, which was for some the worst day and some the best day, is finally behind them. Is this how you remember Christmas? The story of these scholars, the Magi, what some have called Epiphany? If we don't remember this story, then we're going to miss out on a very significant warning and a very timely invitation. And the first of which in these star-studded verses is that Christmas is missed most by those who should see. Christmas is missed most by those who should see. Herod and all of Jerusalem saw Christmas as the worst day instead of paying attention to what the heavens themselves proclaimed. They had the prophecies. They had scripture. They had the history of Israel. They had the hope. They of all people should have seen but they could only see Jesus as a threat to their own personal power, their own personal control, their own, their own comfort, comfort, which is often veiled with the language of safety and status quo. They saw, but they didn't see. And really, Jesus is easy to reject, isn't he? Because if all of this is true, it changes everything. And we're not the ones in control. And we follow him wherever he leads without question. Who wants that? 
But it's exactly those that we find in our passage in this story who think they know better, who are at the height and the most dangerous and vulnerable place. You know, those who should have known better, those who had scripture, those who were surrounded by others who were pursuing God and his will, the insiders, they're the ones who are most at danger because they don't think there's anything else in their life that needs changing. Yeah, but look how far I've come. That's really good, but look how far God wants to continue to take you. Don't just look at the past, but continue to focus on who you're following towards the future. I want you to do something for me, if you'd be so kind. Would you take one of your hands and cover one of your eyes? Cover one of your eyes, okay? What do you see? Or maybe better yet, what do you not see? You don't see a gaping black hole, do you? You see, our minds are magnificent in that they can slowly manipulate to the point that we think we're seeing the whole picture, even though half of it's been cut out. And actually, studies have been shown that our subconscious is what fills in the gaps around the periphery with what we think should be there. And in every one of our lives, we've got blind spots. We think we see the whole picture, when in reality, a lot of us are seeing what we want to see. And when Christ comes, he wants to reveal all of reality, challenge us in our self-deception, And he wants to take control and say, let me guide you into life and life abundant. But far too often we say, no, I think I can see just fine. And we ignore him or we even push against him. Do you see? Do you see? Don't miss him. Maybe you've been going to church for a while on Sundays. Maybe you've been going to church your whole life. And you're wrestling and... There's this one part in your life, you've even had some friends or loved ones who in the past confronted you in love and said, wake up. And you don't even hear that Jesus has come and said, I've come here to guide you in this particular area of your life too. Whether it's your sexuality, your finances, your work life, your engagement in justice, whatever it is for you. And you've been ignoring and maybe even pushing against him. Stop. Heed the warning. Look up. Christmas is missed most by those who should see. Do you see? And the second lesson we learn from this moment in history is more of an invitation, and it's very timely. Here it is. Christmas draws in the most unlikely. Christmas draws in the most unlikely. No no one was expecting these magi, these pagan scholars, to be the ones pointing the way to the Messiah. And yet it is exactly them who God calls and uses. If they would have only given them respect, listened, and paid heed also to the scriptures to which they dug, then maybe they too could have been at the house celebrating the Son of God. Can you imagine How all of Jerusalem, seeing what the scholars saw, hearing what the scriptures were saying, made the trek to Bethlehem to surround the home. Could you see the magnificent picture of what could have been? Christmas is God's call to welcome. To welcome. The foreigner, the refugee, the forgotten, 
the outcast, the failure, those who are on the fringes. Really, it's a reminder of God's welcome to you and me because aren't we all the unlikely? I know the sins I've committed, the pain I've caused others intentionally or unintentionally. In one sense, we're all the unlikely. But in another very real sense, simultaneously, we all have someone in our lives who are the unlikely, don't we? Those folks that we think that are the most unlikely to ever be followers of Jesus. And it's usually in those relationships and in those people where we see God do some of his most amazing work. Are you welcoming the unlikely in your life? Do you not only have eyes to see, but arms that are open? Think of those who are the unforgiven in your life. But Gabe, you don't understand what they did to me. Do we understand what we've done before God such that there is no category for unforgiveness in the Christian life? Are we aware of our racial biases? Oh, Gabe, I'm colorblind. No one's colorblind. Everybody has racial bias. The question is, are you confronting it with the love of the gospel and seeking to live informed rather than ignorant to your racial bias? Are you aware of your own idols of safety and comfort? Because here's the deal. God is drawing what many in the media and what many politicians are calling the most unlikely to the United States. As Kelly already showed and talked about in the welcome the Syrian refugee crisis has become an epidemic of mass proportions. It's become a historical event, and the question still remains whether we will be welcoming or not. And look, I know this is complex. I'm not going to be naive and to say that there are simple solutions to a very complex problem. I'm not going to be utopian that if we just do this, finally everything will be okay. Let's be realistic. I know this is complex. And so we're actually going to be hosting an event here at the downtown campus come February 18th. I know that's a little ways off. February 18th, save the date, mark it in your Bibles, mark it in your calendar, on your note sheet, where we're going to seek to talk biblically, not just politically with its polarizing rhetoric, but biblically about how we thoughtfully respond and welcome the unlikely. Because we need help with this, don't we? We all need to learn how to better welcome the unlikely. And remember, Christmas draws in the most unlikely. We, we, will we welcome them as we too have been welcomed? Because I think if we don't, we're going to miss out. And I would even go so far as that in the same way that all of Jerusalem and Herod missed out, we may even miss out on seeing Jesus. This is a wake-up moment. When you come back to the story at the end of chapter 2, after the short stint of being refugees, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are called back home to the district of Galilee, to a small little backroads town, a small town, their hometown of Nazareth. And even this was always a part of God's plan. Look what Matthew says in chapter 2, verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, interestingly enough, this is one of the only times that Matthew says the prophets rather than the prophet. And that's because nowhere in the Old Testament is it explicitly claimed that the Messiah would be from Nazareth. But this is what we do find if we remember our two components of the pattern and the part. Being called a Nazarene was akin to being called an uneducated hillbilly, a degenerate, an outcast, 
disregarded by the rest of culture. And that's the pattern we see over and over and over again in the prophets that when the Messiah does come, he will be despised. He will be rejected. So of course he should come from Nazareth because everybody from Nazareth is despised. We see this even when Nathan, who becomes one of the apostles in the gospel account of John, is told that Jesus comes from Nazareth. What does he ask? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Unlikely. And yet it was always God's plan that the unlikely Messiah would come from the most unlikely of places. And just like the star that the scholars saw in the sky, some would see him as clear as day and be drawn in, and others would miss him completely. There will be some who see Jesus as coming as the best day of their life because they know how broken and how in need they are of a deliverer. And for others, it will still be the worst day of their life because they don't want to give up power. They don't want to give up control. They want to be sovereign of their own life and they don't want to admit their sin. If you want freedom, the way to be free of guilt and sin isn't to ignore it or to justify it or to point at other people as they're the reasons why we're engaged in it. It's to own it to confess it, to surrender it, and find forgiveness in Christ. That's the only way to be free. Is Christmas your best day or your worst day? It all hinges on how you embrace and whether you embrace the unlikely Jesus and the unlikely who are with him. Do you see him? Don't miss him. Let him draw you in and then follow him. And let him teach you how to welcome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came in the most unlikely of ways, such that those who see him the most clearly are the unlikely and who know themselves as such. God, may you guide us in humility. And yet, may you simultaneously give us courage to welcome whom the rest of culture call the unlikely. May we hear the truth of your word, and may it be the guiding framework to how we reach out, rather than the cultural milieu with its skewed values. God, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Give us eyes to see and arms that are open. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh,